page, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, all, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the apostle reveals God's purposes for his children from eternity past. And he does that because he wants us to see how infinitely blessed we are now that we are in Christ because of the lavish kindness and the great richness of his grace toward us in the Beloved. And the reason that he is doing this is to sort of put a rock under our feet so that when, beginning with chapter 4, he comes around and addresses all of the practical issues of life and begins exhorting us to live uh, radically on this journey of faith and love, we will be empowered to obey. In fact, the entire first half of this book is doctrinal in nature. It's not narrative. It's not exhortational. It's doctrinal in nature. Because as we have said before, doctrine produces depth. And depth produces strength. And strength produces victory. And victory produces joy. And so if you want the joy and the victory and the strength and the depth, you've got to have the doctrine. You've got to know the truth before the truth will set you free. So Paul begins by telling us who we are as genuine believers, assuming that we are. Who we are as genuine believers in Christ. And now beginning with chapter 2, he reveals how we got to this unspeakably blessed condition. How did we become so blessed How is it that God moved us from where we were to where we are, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? How did all of that take place? Well, he's about to explain all of that to us. And in doing so, he takes us all the way back to the beginning where God found us, as it were, before He saved us. Now prepare yourselves, folks, because the portrait that God is going to paint for you and me is not a pretty one. It's a portrait of us. It's a portrait of me. And it's not something that could be hung in the Louvre. In fact, it's ugly. It's repulsive. It's degrading. It's utterly despicable. In verses 1 through 3, he reveals God's estimation of us before We were saved by grace. And so in these few verses, I want you to see with me eight biblical marks of an unbeliever. Eight biblical marks of an unbeliever. And we're looking at this for two reasons. Number one, as I prayed at the beginning, we need to look at our own hearts. We need to look at our own hearts and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see 
not only wonderful things in your law, but open my eyes so that I may see into my own heart and give an accurate evaluation as to whether, whether or not I am even a believer, whether or not I am a true child of God. I tell you, you need to do that once in a while. Do not take it for granted. I don't. Is there evidence? Is there more evidence to support the supposition that you are a child of God? Or is there more evidence that, uh, to support the supposition that you are a child of the devil? The second reason that I want us to look deeply into this is the reason that Paul does in the context here. He wants us to see the depths from which we have been rescued. So that when we see, as we saw in chapter 1, the heights to which God has embraced us and planted us, we will worship Him. We will praise Him. And we will do it with a holy life. We will do it with a holy life. And so we want to look at the eight biblical marks of an unbeliever. Are you ready? Mark number one. He is spiritually dead. He's spiritually dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that it's in the past tense. He's speaking of all of us who truly believe and are in Christ, referring back to what we were like before God's grace, before salvation. This is not the condition of the believer now. We are not dead in our trespasses and sin, but it is the one that we were born in, physically and spiritually. Before we were born again, we were born dead. We were still born spiritually. In a word, as Paul says, we were dead. Folks, when you boil it all down, there are only two explanations for why mankind finds itself in such a sorry state as he obviously is today. The first option comes from the Bible. It's the one the Bible offers through the apostles and the prophets who were inspired by God. The other option originates in the minds of unregenerate men. Now, basically, man's view can be summed up by asserting that the reason that we all fall so far short of the golden rule, as it's called, is because man simply has not had enough time yet to evolve into it. We've not yet shed our baser, ape-like, animalistic tendencies. But we live in the hope that one day we will evolve into a race of kinder, gentler Creatures who love and mutually tolerate one another. Unfortunately, that's not due to happen for a couple more million years. So for the time being, anyway, we just need to hang on as best we can and muddle through and do whatever comes natural. God's perspective, however, is far less complicated and it takes a lot less time to explain. You see, God says the reason that we have so much trouble in the world is not because mankind has not gone through some complex course of evolution. Man is in the current situation that we are in because he is dead. He is spiritually, morally, in every way, dead. 
Now, obviously, Paul is not speaking of physical death, but rather of spiritual death. We do have a heart that beats. We have lungs that breathe in and out. We have eyes that see things physically. We can hear, we can touch, we can taste, we can smell. Remember, however, that in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you shall surely what? Die. And they didn't die, did they? They didn't die. And so we see the first act of grace on the part of God, but we also know something else. We also know that something within them changed radically. They didn't die physically. They died spiritually. Now, what does it mean to die spiritually? What is spiritual deadness? Well, in the Bible, spiritual life is always described in terms of a person's relationship with God. In fact, as Jesus said in John 17, 3, eternal life is defined by a person's relationship with God. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. What is life? What is spiritual life? It is to know God. It is to be in communion and a relationship of peace with God. Peace as opposed to conflict. We're no longer under the wrath of God. But we are now adopted sons. That's what it means to be alive. That's what it means to be alive spiritually. It means we exist in mutual in a mutual relationship with God. To be dead, then, is the exact opposite of being alive. To be spiritually dead means that we exist apart from God. We have no relationship with Him. We are unresponsive to Him. We hear the word preached, and it does nothing to us. I remember... Uh, Excuse me. In years past, when Pastor Jim would preach from this pulpit, and uh, we had an unbeliever who came all the time and sat in the back. They were here to help out uh, another member of our congregation who was elderly. And uh, Jim would preach the most uh, wonderful, heart-wrenching, gut-piercing sermon from the Word of God. And all the believers would be laying out on the pews, so to speak. And I would go back and talk to this friend, and he would tell me, you know, uh, the 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 bulletin uh, pages for the hymns were mislabeled. And did you notice that, that the word here in, in hymn number two on our song sheet is uh, the wrong word? And he would go through the index and he would find discrepancies in the hymnal. And I'm thinking, <laughs> one of the greatest messages has ever been, that has ever been preached in this pulpit was just delivered. And you're concerned about the discrepancies in the hymnal. What does that mean? He's dead. He's dead. He's spiritually dead. That's what it means to be dead. You're unresponsive to God. You don't have a vital relationship with God. In fact, as we will see, this kind of person who is dead in his trespasses and sins lives under the constant threat of God's eternal punishment. To be dead, then, is to be the opposite of being spiritually alive. And, and by the way, this was the spiritual condition of the man in Matthew 8, 21 and 22, whom Jesus called to follow him. Come and follow me. Remember that? And the man replied by asking permission, Would you please let me go bury my father first? Now, you need to understand 
that that was kind of a Hebrew, ex- Hebrew expression, which meant, I've got an inheritance coming, and when my daddy dies and I bury him, that inheritance will be mine, I will be financially independent, and I will then have the freedom to follow you. And how did Jesus respond? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, that's the way spiritually dead people think. You're not nearly as interested in following me as you are in getting your hands on the earthly inheritance. You are not worthy of me. You are spiritually dead. And this was also the condition of the widows that Paul warned Timothy about in 1 Timothy 5, 6. He wrote these words. This is even more explicit. He says, She who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. In Haiti, they call a person who is dead while they live a zombie. They say zombie. It's a person who is dead And yet they walk, and they breathe, and their mind is gone. A zombie. Well, that's what it means to be spiritually dead. You're a walking zombie spiritually. It means you have no relationship with God, but you've given your heart and your affections over to things that God hates, which are summarized by Paul in these words. Trespasses and sins. That's what you've given your heart to. That's where you live. You are dead because of, or you live in the realm of deadness, which is governed by trespasses and sins. The word trespass here is a word that means to slip, or to fall, or to deviate, or to go the wrong direction. If I'm out with my boys in Kansas, and we're hunting pheasant, and we come up on a fence and climb over the barbed wire fence into the neighbor's field, guess what? We're trespassing. We just crossed the line. We stepped out of the boundaries of the law. And that's where sinful man lives. Constantly outside the law of God. Constantly transgressing the law of God. Constantly going beyond what God has told us to do. The word sin here. Sins carries the idea of missing the mark, but as Romans 1 explains, it's not as though we were shooting to hit the mark. It's not as though we actually wanted to exalt and enjoy the glory of God. Rather, we intentionally, uh, Romans 1 says, exchange the glory of God for, uh, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and creepy, crawly things. In other words, we found everything in the world more desirable to us than God. You remember when you were an unbeliever? Some of you came to know the Lord when you were an adult. You remember when you were an unbeliever? You desired everything in the world except God. And I'm afraid our churches are full of people who come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And Monday through Saturday, they desire everything but God. It's a mark of an unbeliever, folks. It's the mark of an unbeliever. 
It says, perhaps you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. If you have no desire for God on Monday through Saturday, then perhaps you don't know God. Perhaps you are still dead while you walk, while you sing the hymns, while you listen to the preaching. You are still dead. Now this explains why, why man sins. All of us are born alive physically, but dead spiritually. And the only way we can become alive spiritually is to be what? Born again. You see, a child does not become a liar when they tell a lie. Rather, he becomes a liar. Or he's, he, he lies because he's a liar by nature. A man doesn't become a thief when he steals. Rather, he steals because he is a thief by nature. Committing sinful acts does not make us sinful. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That is a description of our unregenerate nature. If you want proof of that, just take a couple of minutes to walk down the hallway here and look through the glass at the toddler room. Go ahead and watch my two twins. I tell you, they don't have to go to class. They don't have to take courses in hitting, screaming, whining, and demanding. They were born with all that stuff pre-programmed in their precious little hearts, and only God can get it out. Now let me say that the fact that all men are born dead spiritually does not mean that we all sin equally. We don't all sin equally. One author writes, if you've got 20 corpses lying on a battlefield, they, all, they may all be experiencing different degrees of decay, but they are uniformly dead. And so one person may look more alive than another, but they are all dead. The sin will manifest itself in different degrees, but the state of spiritual death has no degrees. Not all men are as evil as they could be, but all have exchanged the glory of God for other things, thus demonstrating that, spiritually speaking, they are dead. Dead. James sums it up by saying, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith? And there isn't any evidence to prove it. What good is that? It's a dead faith. It's dead. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the first mark of an unbeliever is that he's dead. He's spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. Number two, he walks according to the course of this world. Paul writes again here in chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In other words, the direction of our lives matched our spiritual condition. It was consistent with our spiritual nature of deadness. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the compass of our lives was directed by the magnetic pull of the world. Where's the world going? Well, that's where we go. Now, the world here is not a reference to planet Earth. It's not a reference of the sphere that we live upon physically. Rather, it is an outlook. It is a mentality. It is a worldview. It is the 
course of the world's thinking. It's the course of the world's values. It is the course of the world's affections. In other words, before Christ redeemed us with his blood, our lives were basically governed by the current of the thinking of godless humanity. What Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the mass mind. What does the majority think? Well, that's what we think. Where's the majority going? Well, that's where we're going. How does the majority dress? That's how we dress. How does the majority talk? Well, that's how we talk. What does the majority like to watch on TV? Well, that's what we like to watch on TV. If you're dead in your trespasses and sins, the way you walk as a living dead person will be according to the course of the world. The world sets the course. Folks, why do you think Oprah Winfrey is so popular? It's not because she's pointing people to the thrice holy God. I can assure you of that. It's because she encourages people simply to give themselves over to the current of the world's thinking and go with the flow. And to one degree or another, we all did that before we were redeemed. All of us did that. It may not have been Oprah, but each of us floated in a stream in the world that made us happy. I grew up on the river. I grew up playing on the banks of the Delaware River, the muddy, dirty, polluted river. It was full of catfish, and you couldn't eat them, but it was fun to catch them. It was fun to play. It was a very historic place, uh, 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 George Washington, whoever the first president was, George Washington crossed the Delaware just up the river from my house. Many of the revolutionary battles were fought there. The Battle of Trenton was there. Jonathan Edwards was president at Princeton right down the river. And we grew up playing on the river. And one thing you don't have to spend much time at the river to notice is that the river, the water is moving at different speeds. There's different currents. It's all the same river. As the tide comes in or the tide goes out, it's all moving in the same direction. But if you get out in the middle where it's deep, it's really moving fast. And the more shallow it gets toward the banks, the slower it goes. And then on the edges, you've got water that's pretty well stagnant or just kind of swirling, not really seeming to go anywhere. But eventually it goes out or it comes back in. It's all moving in the same direction. And that's the way it is with us spiritually. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we just... We just found the stream that suited our fancy. We're all in the river. We're all just in different streams. For some, it's the stream of affluence and power, money. But it's the corporate ladder syndrome. For some, it's the stream of entertainment. It's the next movie, the next video, the next whatever, the next game that comes out for the computer. For others, it's a stream of trivia and information. They're newsaholics. They spend all of their time on the Internet finding out the latest piece of unnecessary and irrelevant trivia so that they will know nothing, so they can tell everyone nothing. For some, it's the stream of substance abuse and sex. For others, it's the stream of knowledge and education. Each of us found some pattern of life that excluded God. We all used to walk according to the course of this world. We found our place in the river that we liked the best. It was different than other places. It moved faster or slower, but we're all moving in the same current. We're all moving in the same direction. 
That's where God found us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we lived, we walked according to the course of this world. We all floated downstream with everybody else. Number three, the third mark of an unbeliever is that he follows the ways of the devil. Paul writes, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, some may protest that they never followed the devil. They never even believed in the devil. Well, if you're floating downriver according to the current of the godless mass mind, then you are right where the enemy of your soul wants you. You are comfortable in your own little current, meandering your way downstream, not realizing that the river that you're in is the great Niagara, and around the next bend, or the one after that, will come the great falls of God's judgment. But if you are in the river, you are of your father, the devil. Now, anyone who thinks and lives according to the presuppositions, ideologies, and standards over which Satan has control is living a life dominated by supernatural beings, whether they know it or not. You say, I've never met a demon. Doesn't matter. You're influenced by them all the time. You say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have time for you. You're just not important enough. He's not going to mess with you. But his demons will. They'll harass you. By the way, the devil is not omnipresent. Did you, did you know that? Jesus is omnipresent. The devil's got to be in one place at one time. So there are bigger fishes in this big old pond of ours than you and me. He doesn't have time for us. But he's there. And if you are in the river, if you are following the course of the world, you're following Satan. You're following the prince of the power of the air. The devil is so subtle that he dominates man and persuades him at the same time. He both dominates and persuades. And while you think you're just exercising your own will, you don't realize that you're being led like an ox to the slaughter. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul calls the devil the God of this world. And here in Ephesians 6, he tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That is the demonic host. And if you are of the opinion that there is no such thing, you have already lost the battle. You have already lost the battle. Unbeliever. Following the course of this world is following the course of the devil. And the devil is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that leads us to the fourth mark of an unbeliever. He is literally the offspring of disobedience. The fourth mark. He is an offspring of disobedience. Paul sets this up as if to say that our spiritual mother, our spiritual mother, was disobedience. Where did I come from? Disobedience gave birth to you. That's what he's saying. The phrase doesn't just mean disobedient sons or disobedient children. It means offspring of disobedience. This is reminiscent of the time Jesus told the Jews, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do, John eight forty four. 
Likewise, in the Old Testament, sinners were called sons of Belial, and they even used that term of Jesus, the Pharisees did. What it means to be a son of disobedience is that we quarrel with God over his right to command us. In other words, we are rebellious. We assert our will over against God's will rather than doing what we know he would have us do. And we did our own thing instead of doing what we know God wants us to do. That's what it means to be a son of disobedience. We set ourselves up against God and pretend that we are the master of our fate and the captain of our soul and we live our own plan. We live according to our own unregenerate will. And that's the case with every believer. And this is, by the way, why there is nothing so repugnant to our culture as the gospel. There's nothing so repugnant to the unbelievers of this world, and which make up the majority of our culture now, nothing is more repugnant than the true gospel. You see, the gospel demands that we submit our lives, our ideas, our will to God's. It means that we agree with God about who we are and what we are in for if we don't repent. It means we embrace Jesus not just as Savior but as our Master. His words become our truth. His desires become our ambition and His approval our highest calling. Nothing could be further from the mind of an unbeliever. The, na the natural man hates, hates such thinking. His natural mind is hostile to God. It's not subject to the law of God. Nor is it even able to be subject to the law of God. Paul says in Romans 8-7, he is not even, even able to do so. You say, ah, but I know people who are not Christians, but they believe in God. Let me tell you something. That's not true. You say, well, they tell me they believe in God. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in God. They believe in a figment of their own imagination. They believe in a patchwork quilt of theological ideas and God kinds of concepts that they kind of throw into a bag and they wrap it all up and say, I believe this. But they don't believe in the true God. They believe in a figment of their imagination. They believe in a God of their own making, a God of their own understanding. They have made God in their image, and they bow down and worship Him. If they truly believed in the God of the Bible, they would love His Son, Jesus. That much is clear. If you truly believe in the God of the Bible, you will love Jesus Christ. And be willing to submit to him, however imperfectly, you will be willing to submit to his lordship. The lost person is a son of disobedience. He does not obey God, nor is he able to perform anything that God will accept as true obedience until he has submitted his soul to Christ alone in faith. Until then, he will continue to sin, and he will enjoy doing so. And that brings us to the fifth mark. Such a person delights in the lust of the flesh. He delights in the lust of the flesh. Once again, keep in mind, 
the apostle is not only intending to show us the marks of an unbeliever, but more specifically, he is revealing how we formerly walked, how we formerly lived before grace. All of us used to live, as Paul says in verse 3, in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, our lives were bound up, not in trying to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord in all respects, but rather living to discover and enjoy the next pleasurable experience. The river whose many currents we enjoyed swimming in is the river called lust. It's called lust. Now, hang with me here, folks, because you're about to learn something, I think. The word for lust here refers to a strong inclination and desire. In fact, strong inclinations and desires of every sort. It's not just sexual lust. It's lust of every kind. The world of psychology, frankly, has relabeled this sin that the Bible calls lust and give it a more palatable name. You know what it's called? It's now called Need, N-E-E-D. It's no longer lust, it's need. And so you hear people say, I just can't stay in this marriage because I'm not getting my needs met. Or you hear people saying, you know, I just can't stay in this church because it's not meeting my needs anymore. Usually when a person speaks of the deprivation of their own needs, what they're really saying is that I'm unable to satisfy my lusts in this present condition. Now the word for lust here does not speak inherently of sinful desires. In fact, the same word is used in the Bible to speak of strong, holy desires as well. For example, Luke 22:15, Jesus said to his men, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. If you were to read this in the Greek, it would literally say this. With lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. What's he saying? Well, he's saying the, the idea here is that Jesus had a strong and holy desire to share the Passover with his disciples before he died. And he was about to institute the Lord's Supper. I mean, this meal that he was about to e eat with his disciples was freighted with meaning and depth that would be one of the pillars of the church. Normally, however, the term for lust has negative connotations, as here in Ephesians 2. And so we need to ask the question, how do we know whether our desire is a lust or whether it is a lawful or holy desire? How do we know the difference between whether what we want is a lust, our wanting is a lust, or whether it's a lawful, holy desire? Well, it's, it's easy. Ask yourself two questions. Whenever you feel like you want something really bad, like I really want to see that movie, or I really want to buy that car, or I really want to take a nap, or I really want to eat that banana split, ask yourself two questions. Am I willing to sin in order to get this need? Fulfilled? Am I willing to sin in order to get this need fulfilled? And question number two is, 
Am I willing to sin if I don't get this desire fulfilled? Am I willing to sin in order to fulfill this desire? And am I willing to sin if I don't get this desire filled? If the answer is yes to either one of those questions, it is a lust and not a holy desire. It is certainly not a need. And folks, this is real practical because it would sure help us out a lot. If you're dieting, you need to know this. If you're dealing with a stubborn habit in your life, you need to grasp this. Is it a need or is it a lust? The unbeliever is willing to sin all over the place to fulfill his unholy desires. And that leads us to the sixth mark of an unbeliever. He indulges the desires of the flesh. He indulges the desires of the flesh. Here Paul gets real specific. He divides this river of lust into two separate streams. The first is called lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. The terms desire of the flesh corresponds to lust of the flesh. A desire is a force inside of us that drives us into action. It's what commands our will to do this or to do that or to do another thing. The lusts of the flesh show themselves in the desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? Well, let's get real practical. The desires of the flesh are these. Hunger, thirst, sleep, pleasure, happiness, contentment, sex, fill in the blank. Now, these are things that are not inherently sinful. In fact, most of these things are necessary in order for us to sustain life. We've got to have them. So what makes it a sinful lust, a lust of the flesh, and not just a need of the flesh? Well, even though we need most of these things, Nevertheless, each of them becomes sinful to us when we allow them to take control of our lives. Whenever we allow what we consider to be a need, even if it truly is a need, if we allow it to control us, when we begin loving one of them more than we love God, we have moved into lust. We have moved into sin. The unbeliever, however, couldn't care less about loving God. Couldn't care less about loving God. The God of the Bible offends him. The cross of Christ is foolishness to him. The demands of discipleship are oppressive to him. What he really wants is to feel good about himself, to get his needs met as often and with as much pleasure and gratification as possible. But this isn't the only lust the unbelieving man or woman gives himself over to. There's another kind as well. Mark number seven, he gratifies the desires of the mind. He gratifies the desires of the mind. You ever thought about this before? I'm not sure I ever have before this week in studying the word. We understand gratifying the desires of the flesh, and we can just fill in the gap. I mean, it's almost intuitive for us to understand what he's talking about there. But what about the desires of the mind? Paul specifically says he gratifies the desires of the mind. This is the second stream of the river of lust. Not only does 
he float in the current of, of, the, of the lust of the flesh. He also enjoys wading in the warm waters of the lust of the mind. Mind here has to do with our thinking. It has to do with our thinking. It includes emotions as well as the intellect. In fact, usually in the, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not just speaking of what you feel. It includes that, but it also includes uh, your thinking capacity so that uh, the Old Testament says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart is not just a feeling mechanism. That usually has to do with the bowels of compassion in Hebrew poetry and literature. Talking about the bowels of love and the bowels of, I mean, that, that just doesn't fit for us Americans. We talk about the heart. You know, other things happen in the bowels, but um, the heart for the Hebrew uh, was the seat of the intellect and the emotion. And so how do we indulge the desires of the mind? Well, we do that by any sinful kind of thinking and feeling that we allow ourselves to become absorbed with. Any kind of thinking or feeling that we allow ourselves to indulge to a sinful capacity. That's a desire of the mind, a fleshly, lustful desire of the mind. You want some examples? I'll give you some examples of the lusts, lustful desires of the mind. And here's just a short list. Jealousy, envy, malice, pride, hatred, bitterness. You know why these things are poisonous? You know why bitterness is poisonous in the body? You know why it's so often runs its course through a local church and, and, and eats it up from the inside out. You know why? Because the original person who feels this sense of bitterness dwells on it. They indulge the desires of their mind. You know why men give in to uh, the lust of internet pornography? Because when the opportunity presents itself, you know what they do? They think about it. They think about it. They feel something inside. And they indulge that feeling and they indulge that thought until their thoughts about obeying God are so weak in comparison that they are compelled then to give themselves over to it. It is the lust of the mind. And it lays over very nicely upon the lust of the flesh. When we indulge these thoughts and feelings, we are giving ourselves over to the lustful desires of the mind. And that's why we counsel people not to listen to their hearts. Don't listen to your heart. You say, my heart is telling me to leave. Don't listen to your heart. My heart is telling me to look. Don't listen to your heart. My heart is telling me to say what I want to say to that person. Don't listen to your heart. You know what Jeremiah says about your heart? Deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? I, the Lord, know the heart, God says. Don't trust it. Don't trust it. What should we do then? Well, we need to learn to help one another speak the truth of the Word of God to our hearts. Husbands, that's why you're there for your wife, one of the reasons. Wives, that's why you're there for your husband. I praise God that I've got a wife who can help me rein in my thoughts. 
help me lasso those things and bring them in. Praise God that he put a woman in my life who says, I remember the scripture, remember this text, and remember what you always tell me from the other. <laughs> we need to learn to help, help each other rein our thoughts in, to rein our emotions in with the lasso of the word of God and bring it back down onto the solid rock of Christ. Otherwise, we'll sin. The lust of the mind can also be pursued by watching things on TV that are, are a reproach to Christ. Listening to talk radio for no reason other than producing some unprofitable feeling of the mind. It also speaks to the whole area of what we choose to read and how much time we give ourselves to entertainment and movies and games. It can even extend into a, a lust for learning or art or music or drama or philosophy. I tell you, some of the most, and I've told you this before, some of the people in my ten years of ministry in this church who have fallen into the deepest sin were people who were the most philosophically, theologically bright individuals we knew. But that was their idol. God was not their God. Christ Jesus was not their master. They were mastered by sin. Paul says, all things, all things are available to me. All things are open to me, but I will be mastered by none of them. I only have one master. And I will be his slave until death. Again, most of these things are not wrong in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with sports. But you know what? If you give your heart to watching football this season, to the detriment of your family, if you give your heart to football this season or basketball coming up, to the detriment of your walk with God, it's an idol. It's an idol. And you're no different in watching those games on television than the Old Testament Jews were in bowing down before the Asherah pole or in the temple of Diana or before Baal. You have found for yourself an idol that is acceptable in the culture and you are giving it worship. But most things in this list are good and used in the proper way and at the appropriate times and for a reasonable length of times can be okay. And when we allow them to take control of our thoughts, when we allow them to become the compass of our priorities, then we have drifted into the territory of idolatry. And that explains the last mark. Say, why is idolatry important? We need to learn to think in these terms, folks. When you sin, it wasn't because you made a mistake. When you sin, it wasn't because you slipped. It's because you were worshiping a false god. It's because you wanted something so bad that you were willing to sin to get it. You wanted something so bad that when you didn't get it, you were willing to sin. You were wanting something so bad that any thought of the Lord Jesus Christ was pushed back into the back closet or thrown into the trunk of your car or stuffed into the flyleaf of your Bible so that you could sin. That's idolatry. 
And that leads us to the last mark of an unbeliever. He exists as a target of God's judgment. And now you know why. Now you know why. Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What does that mean? It means all of us. All of us. Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond, free, doesn't matter. African, Anglican, doesn't matter. If you are a human being, this is a description of you before grace. And for this reason, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart. God gave them over to the lust of their heart. This is the final mark of an unbeliever. God is pouring out his wrath upon them. You say, well, we don't see any brimstone. We don't see lightning striking people. We don't see people falling over dead for no reason at all. No. It's not the way God does it. You know what he does? You want baseball more than me? Have it. You want your pornography more than me? Take it. You want your business more than me? It's yours. You want your little hobby more than me? Fine. You take it. You want your education? You want your job? You want your trivial pursuits more than me? Have it. And reap the consequences of your decision. That's God's judgment. It's the final mark of an unbeliever. God is pouring his wrath upon them by giving them over to the very things that they desire. And in the end, he will give them over to the fires of eternal hell as well. You show me someone who's addicted to television, I'll show you a man who's got problems in his marriage. You show me a guy who's addicted to pornography... I'll show you a guy who's got problems in every relationship he has. You show me a woman who's addicted to bitterness and depression, which, by the way, for the most part, is a temptation and not a physical ailment. And I'll show you a person who is wrapped up into the lusts of their mind and doesn't know what to do about it and are being told lies. The Word of God speaks to every one of these issues. And these things are the marks of unbelief in us. And more importantly is the marks of unbelievers. This is the condition we all were in before God saved us. We were spiritually dead. We walked in the course of this world. We followed the ways of the devil. We were the offspring of disobedience. We delighted in the lust of the flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh. We gratified the desires of the mind. And we are, therefore, the targets of God's judgment. 
Paul says, that's who you were. That's who you were. Do you realize the depths from which God has saved you? Do you realize how bad it was? In the Old Testament, I believe it's Ezekiel. Paul tells Israel how he started his relationship with them. He said, one day, and I'll paraphrase, I was walking through a field, and I found you laying in a pool of blood. You were an infant, and someone discarded you, and you were a bloody blob of a mess. And I scooped you up, and I took you home, and I raised you. And you became a beautiful woman. And I married you and entered into covenant with you. And now you have left me. Now you have given yourself over to all of the idols of the world. Therefore, I will judge you. I will judge you in order to bring you. You know, that describes really in one picture two different kinds of people. One person is an unbeliever upon whom the judgment of God will fall and will not relent for eternity. The other category of person is the believer who has left their first love and who has given themselves to every sort of pleasure, every idol imaginable, or maybe just one precious little idol. And God pours out his discipline and reproof. How is it for you? Where do you stand? This is an amazing text. This is a desperate situation Paul describes for us. If there's anything that looks like an unredeemable condition, this is it. But I want you to notice the next verse where we will pick up next week. Verse 4. But God, but God, this is who you were, but, he doesn't say you, he doesn't say your preacher, he doesn't say your wife, your kids, he doesn't say the guy on the radio or the TV, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were that baby, helpless, kicking about in the middle of a field, prepared to be eaten by the coyotes, even when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ, and in parentheses, by grace you have been. By grace. You'll never understand grace unless you understand sin. You'll never under, understand redemption until you begin to understand damnation. Or as I always used to like to say it, the good news will never really be that good for you until the bad news becomes really bad. And I tell you, Paul is telling us the bad news for us was really, really bad. 
Paul is trying to get us to see here is how desperately lost we were when God came and poured out on his, his love upon us. And he wants us to see it so that we will no longer live that way. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, that's what he's commending us. He's saying, don't live like that anymore. And you'll read it. You read the rest of Ephesians by yourself this week, preparing for next week. And you'll see 4, 5, and 6, he keeps saying, you don't live like that anymore. If you're a child of God, don't live like that anymore. You've been redeemed from that. That old lifestyle, that old way of sin, floating down the river of lust of your flesh and lust of your mind. Give it up. He wants us to see that we don't have to live that way, but rather for the glory of Jesus and for our own joy in everything that we do. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this text. It's not a pleasant picture. It's not the kind of text that leaves us feeling good about ourselves. But Lord, we we haven't come to feel better about ourselves. We've come to learn about you. And in learning about you, we learn about ourselves. And in learning about ourselves, we know how to repent. How to live by repentance and faith. And we learn how to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would have his way with us because of it. For we pray it in Jesus' name.